Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Daniel Schwartz, the Fredrickson and Bryan Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota Law School. This conversation is part of the Business Scholarship Podcast special series on the 2020 crisis. Today, I'll be speaking with Daniel about insurance issues related to the crisis. Daniel, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Daniel, I hoped we could start the conversation by maybe getting a little bit of an overview of what the insurance scholarship has said that might be applicable to this current crisis, whether that's something that you've written or something that your colleagues in the academy have written. What should we be thinking about that the scholarship has said now that some of the issues are the fore? Well, look, the crisis that's unfolding impacts our society in so many different ways and impacts insurance markets in so many different ways that I think that there are there are numerous ways to slice the conversation. You know, I think an initial question that is just going to become hugely important over the next few months and years is the question of what type of insurance coverage is available for the losses that businesses are currently experiencing. The, the most obvious candidate and probably the potentially most important is business interruption insurance. And there is a real question about whether or not certain business interruption policies that conventionally cover the closure of a business due to direct physical loss to insured property might actually be required to pay for coverage. So that's one big question that's out there. I think that there are a range of scholarly perspectives that can help inform that. If you take a sort of literal sort of traditional contract law interpretation perspective to the question, my view is that it's pretty likely that there's not going to be coverage. And that's certainly the perspective that most business interruption insurers are taking. But there are a range of scholars who have argued for a less contractual approach to interpreting insurance policies, thinking about them more as social instruments, thinking about them more as products, thinking about them more in terms of a utility, uh, certain public goods. And when you start to think about the issues from that perspective, perhaps the analysis changes significantly. It also has implications for a number of legislative proposals that are now on the table that would essentially retroactively require insurers to cover business interruption losses. So I think that there's a whole bucket of questions surrounding the appropriate approach to interpreting insurance policies and that that are going to become essential as we confront this crisis. And I think it'll play out not just in the business interruption sphere, but in other spheres as well. Travel insurance is another one where most travel insurance policies don't provide coverage, at least if you look at their explicit terms. Usually they won't provide coverage if travel is canceled due to the fear of a pandemic. 
again, questions about how that contract language should be interpreted and whether or not the, the view that really predominates in the courts, which is that insurance contracts are ordinary contracts and, you know, notwithstanding the fact that there are some slightly unusual rules that apply in the insurance setting, like like contra pro forensum, the idea that ambiguities are interpreted against the drafter, even though those types of doctrines maybe have more prominence in the insurance setting than in other settings, there's nothing fundamentally different about the process of insurance policy interpretation. So I think that's one big place where there really is a lot of scholarship there. And, you know, people like Ken Abraham at UVA Law School, uh, Jeff Stemple at UNLV Law School. I've written on that, uh, the idea of an insurance contract as a product. All of those sort of issues may come to the fore again. So as I said, ultimately, the sort of more policyholder-friendly approach that some in the academy have pressed has not ended up significantly impacting the judicial approach. So that's one set of issues. There are a whole set of other issues. I think the second big one that is absolutely going to come up is in a really different domain in the insurance setting, and that has to do with the question of whether or not some insurers, particularly life insurers now, systemically significant in a way that could have ramifications for the broader financial system. There's been a lot of scholarship written about the the Dodd-Frank reforms regarding non-bank financial institutions. Those reforms had the effect, the intended effect, was that this new Financial Stability Council, known as the Financial Stability Oversight Council, would uh, be able to designate non-bank firms as systemically significant. And really the idea was to sort of try to deal with firms like AIG that were so prominent in the 2008 crisis, but really were not adequately regulated at the federal level. So the idea was, look, we'll have a few firms that we designate in advance as systemically significant and we'll then sort of have a good sense of the, at the federal level what's going on with them and, and we'll be able to prevent them from contributing to another crisis. Well, that regime sort of, sort of deteriorated over the last decade, uh, particularly during the Trump administration, which de-designated all firms, including all insurers, so that there are no insurers that uh, or any other firms that have been designated as systemically significant non-bank firms. And there's no doubt that in this current environment, certain very large life insurers are facing immense pressures, both the asset and liability sides of their balance sheets in ways that, you know, if this crisis gets a lot worse in terms of mortality risk, in terms of its impact on certain types of assets that are important to insurers' balance sheets, like mortgage-backed securities or uh, corporate bonds, that we could see a, a real threat to financial stability from these firms and yet no financial regulation. So a number of different scholars have written about the issues regarding the Dodd-Frank's mechanism of designating firms as systemic or non-systemic. Jeremy Kress at University of Michigan, Pat McGlory at BC Law School and I have an article in the Southern California Law Review on this. But there are a number of other people have written about this. David Zaring and I have written about this. Actually, we have an article in the University of Chicago Law Review on this topic. Hillary Allen has written some really 
good stuff on this issue. There are a number of other people who have written on non-bank financial risk and sort of the way that Dodd-Frank dealt with that. So I think those are sort of the two big areas I guess I would highlight. In discussing the financial stability of insurers, in 2008, a lot of the issues with large insurers were financial in nature. And so the issues that apply to the banking sector apply to the insurance sector. It sounds like you're suggesting that this time, any stress that the insurance industry might be under might be more stress, example, in the life insurance case, a stress over having adequate funds to pay the claims. Is that what I'm hearing? I don't think that the only issues that, that are involved in the potential instability of large life insurance are limited to solvency and to the payment of claims. So, you know, frankly, if that were the case, I think, frankly, probably state insurance regulation would be, you know, maybe not sufficient, but would be reasonable. Uh, I think that the, the real concern is a financial stability concern in much the same way that we saw in 2008 with AIG because the instability of large financial conglomerates like Prudential, large insurers that have been designated as systemically significant can have substantial spillover effects on the larger financial system. So one way that can happen is if those companies face huge liquidity needs, they can end up engaging in a fire sale of, uh, of certain financial assets that can then have huge spillover effects to the rest of the system. So if they need to sell off their stockpile of mortgage-backed securities to pay off policyholder claims or to pay off counterparties, then, or to replace lost funding, whatever it is, then that can have a huge effect on other firms, other financial firms, and on financial markets more broadly. And similarly, you know, another way that can happen is by is just by counterparty risk directly. And that was, that was, again, what we saw with AIG. One of the reasons why the failure of AIG would have been so devastating in 2008 was that it, was, it had all these major banks that were counterparties and players in the financial markets that were their counterparties. And again, I think that there are some risks uh, there with current large life insurance conglomerates. So I tend to think that the, the more substantial sort of transmission mechanism of systemic risk involves the, the fire cell risk that I mentioned earlier, that there's going to be, there can be a massive set sale of uh, selling, attempt to sell of relatively illiquid assets that, that really, you know, exacerbates turmoil in the, in the financial markets. Dan, what should we be looking for in terms of facts on the ground as it relates to this crisis and in insurance, maybe in the coming weeks, the coming months, and maybe what are the repercussions a year from now uh, that we might be looking for? Well, I think we really want to see, uh, on the financial stability side, I think we really want to see uh, uh, whether the large financial conglomerates can stay financially solvent, even if this thing gets much worse, right? And so I think that's going to be a real question, right? I mean, Prudential and MetLife, their, their stock at one point was trading, uh, you know, in, in, in recent days at 30 to 40% of, of, of their price just a month ago. And so, you know, that in and of itself is a, is a indicator, I think, that there's some real risk there. And, uh, you know, I think, I think we want to see how 
their market valuation, which is really the most, you know, the best insight we have onto their riskiness on a day-by-day basis uh, is affected by, by risk levels. But right now, the, it does seem like it, their share prices are reacting very substantially, more substantially than most firms to the sort of the larger, the larger outbreak. So that's a big question I have. Another big question I have is whether or not the federal government has the expertise or, and the capacity to understand what's going on at these firms. Right now, I, I don't think it does. I mean, there's not an actor in the federal government that really understands the, the particular risks facing insurers. And I think one of the reasons in which they are particularized is they have unique assets, unique set of assets because they often invest in relatively illiquid assets to gain because they presume that their liabilities are long-term. And so I think the big question is to see if we see any type of run on any of these types of life insurers. And that can manifest itself in a number of ways. It could manifest itself by policyholders seeking to cash out of their policies when they can. It can manifest itself in fragile funding drying up relatively quickly. It can manifest itself in, in securities lending operations or derivatives operations that require, you know, substantial posting of collateral or substantial return of collateral. So there's just a variety of different ways. And if we see any type of run uh, on these life insurers, if we see, if we continue to see their stock prices reacting much more like than the rest of the markets to this financial fragility, if we continue to see a, a lack of any expertise in the federal government, those are all things I think we should be looking at. On the coverage question, which affects more property casualty insurers, the big questions we should be looking at are, are any courts going to actually suggest there is coverage under business interruption policies come up with a creative argument that the virus's presence in in a physical space constitutes direct physical loss of the type that might trigger business interruption coverage? And then I think there are also big questions about assuming as is likely, that those coverage suits don't actually result in payout. There are going to be questions regarding, there's some proposals at state legislators and even potentially in Congress about retroactively imposing liability on insurers. Do those laws move forward? If they do, are they going to be challenged on potentially constitutional grounds? And are there other creative approaches that are going to be used to try to facilitate either use insurance networks to distribute funds to small and medium-sized businesses? Are there uh, ways of setting up, after this crisis is over, sort of federal reinsurance funds that would facilitate the future provision of business interruption insurance for pandemics? So I think there are a range of issues that are going to play out along these dimensions. And, you know, again, these are just, I think, the two most significant, but it's hard to predict because Everything is so dramatically changing right now. So, Dan, let's say that there are some people listening who are going to have to tackle this crisis as it relates to insurance, whether they are regulators at the state level or they're federal policymakers or they're practicing attorneys or maybe they're judges. What are some of the learnings from the scholarship they should be thinking about as they move forward in addressing the insurance side of this crisis? Well, I think from the financial stability side, a big question is going to be where do you where do you regulate? What level of government do you regulate 
large financial conglomerates. Uh, right now, you know, there's always been historically a real bias in favor of state insurance regulation as opposed to federal regulation. That was a, a, a big, that's been a big debate for many, many, many decades going, going you know, relating to the proposals for federal charters of insurers. There have been, you know, proposals for more robust federal consumer protections relating to insurance. And generally, at least outside of the health insurance sphere, those proposals have been shut down. And I think that a big sort of area that the literature can help sort of think through is, look, what types of insurance issues simply cannot be handled by the states for structural reasons? So, I, I think, you know, systemic stability is sort of a core example of that, right? The, the issues, national in scope inherently, they're inherently international in scope. And for that reason, it really doesn't make sense structurally to try to have states and states alone attempting to understand and respond to that risk. I think there are also issues regarding the level of expertise that, that regulators need to have and whether or not that's located at the state or federal level. There's certain economies of scale with, you know, with federal regulatory agencies, but they have certain expertise that states just can't match, especially because they, that is currently where banking regulation is and other financial regulation is at the federal level. And in a sense, to understand the, the systemic risk issues associated with insurance, you need to have some perspective on those other portions of the financial system. And state insurance regulators often don't have that. So I think that's one question, the, the deep federalism questions that are at play here about where certain issues should be regulated. You know, I think another question that's going to come into play is just sort of legislative design questions. You know, the premise of Dodd-Frank was, look, we get this expert body of regulators, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, this authority to discretionary authority really to designate individual firms as systemic that that will that type of mechanism can work well and i think the last decade and you know we're seeing it now has has really led us to question that because what's clear is that at this point you know now that we're in the midst of a crisis it's not sensible to try to it's not going to help much to try to designate firms that are already having trouble you need to designate firms beforehand, before there's trouble, so that you can be assured that when there is a crisis, those firms will be sources of stability as opposed to fragility. And so I think that there there going to be a lot of questions about reworking Dodd-Frank's mechanism, about whether or not there should be a more rule-based structure for determining what types of non-bank financial firms are under the umbrella of federal oversight. Um, and subject to certain more systemic risk-oriented rules. So I think that's another domain in which the, the scholarship can really provide a lot of lessons. And then turning back to the, the coverage issue, I think that set of questions there about, you know, that are more fundamental in a sense about whether insurance policies really are just like any other contract or whether it makes sense in some ways to recognize that while they are a contract, they have other features um, like products, like you know, like public utilities, like broader social tools, and that whether or not that should inform, if not the inter their interpretation, 
than potentially the capacity of the government to use insurance technologies and expertise and resources to deliver funds, uh, whether it's through retroactive coverage and passed in laws or whether it's through a more of a collaborative enterprise where aid is, is funneled to small businesses via insurers and intermediaries. So I think that sort of how do you conceptualize insurance, those sets of questions can be potentially thought through with the aid of some of the scholarship in recent years. How Our guest has been Daniel and Byron, professor of law at the University of Minnesota Law School. This conversation has been part of the Business Scholarship Podcast special series in the 2020 crisis. Today, we talked with Daniel about the insurance issues related to the crisis. Dan, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.